G'day mate, Forty here. I want to talk about the rise of Christian nationalism, what's behind it, what exactly does it mean, but let's start off with Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, the thing about the Chinese government is, this is kind of weird, the Chinese government almost never celebrates diversity. Think about that. American liberals, liberals throughout the West, love China. It's Justin Trudeau's model, but China does not celebrate diversity. In fact, and the American media never says this, but it's absolutely true, China is a militarized ethnostate. It's run along traditional fascist lines for the benefit of a specific ethnic group, the Han Chinese. That's not supposed to be allowed, but they're doing it. So to Chinese leaders, the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion, those concepts make no sense at all. At best, they're bizarre. It's one of those incomprehensible jokes that Western liberals tell. The Chinese don't get it at all. So when Nancy Pelosi took off for Taiwan today aboard a U.S. military jet, the Chinese government did not issue a statement applauding her remarkable display of spunky girl power. Taiwan today. No one in Beijing congratulated Nancy Pelosi for breaking glass ceilings as the very first speaker in history to identify as a woman. No one in China even mentioned that. Instead, Chinese leaders treated Pelosi's arrival like an invasion. Air raid sirens sounded in coastal towns in China as her plane approached. When she finally landed, the Chinese military announced live fire exercises in the airspace around Taiwan for the next four days. China's foreign ministry declared that Nancy Pelosi's mere presence, quote, gravely undermines peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, end quote, proving that in Asia, as at home, things rarely improve when Nancy Pelosi shows up. So the question really is, why did she go in the first place? That's the real question. And the official line in Washington, as always, is totally implausible, is that Pelosi's trip was designed to, quote, reaffirm Taiwan's status as a U.S. ally. Okay, except the problem is Taiwan is not a U.S. ally. In fact, Taiwan may be the only country in the world the Biden administration believes does not have the right of self-determination. Quote, we do not support Taiwan's independence, said the Pentagon spokesman just the other day. Wait a second, they're against democracy? You know, if they were for democracy, right? They're always throwing democracy at you. Turns out they don't mean it. Not that you ever thought they did. So the one thing you can be certain of is that Nancy Pelosi did not fly all the way to Taiwan to signal that the United States is going to defend that island from a Chinese invasion. We're not going to do that. We're not in a position to do that, even if we wanted to do that. We've already sent too many of our surface-to-air missiles, for example, to Ukraine, where our oligarch friends are busy selling them to various dark actors on the international arms market. So if there's a major war in Asia anytime soon, we will not be winning it. Every sober person knows that. Sad but true. So what's really going on here? Well, on the internet, you may have noticed quite a bit of speculation, some of it generated by Chinese state media, that Pelosi went to Taiwan to check on investments that her husband Paul made using insider information. Now, he did make those investments, and he has to use insider information. That's why he's such a fantastic stock picker worth more than $100 million. In this case, Paul Pelosi bought semiconductor stock. Taiwan makes semiconductors. Rising tensions in the region would create more demand for semiconductors. That's the theory. Is it true? Well, Nancy Pelosi is from Baltimore, so we would not put anything past her, but it doesn't quite satisfy as an explanation. 
That is a long and highly public trip to take for a relatively small investment. There's got to be something else going on. What is it? Well, it is entirely possible that the most obvious explanation for this debacle is the right one. It's possible that the Biden administration are so completely incompetent, the people who run the White House are so utterly blinded by their own arrogance and their ineptitude that they just don't appreciate or even understand the implications of what they are doing. So Nancy Pelosi got bored of spending the summer in Napa and she wanted to take a free trip to Asia where she could pretend to be a statesman for a week. Girl power. Let her go. It's possible that's all the thinking they did before signing off on Pelosi's trip. Here, for example, is the Pentagon spokesman, John Kirby, who you're supposed to take seriously, proving the point effectively this morning on Fox. The aggressiveness, the coercion, the increase in tensions in the last weeks and months have all come from the Chinese side. What we have said is that there's no reason that this visit should escalate tensions in any way whatsoever. Oh, so there's no reason that this visit should escalate tensions in any way whatsoever. Thanks, John Kirby, for describing the world as you fervently wish it was. We'd love to know your views on perpetual motion machines. Now back to reality as we actually find it. Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan has, in fact, dramatically escalated tensions in the region throughout Asia. In fact, escalated them more than any single act in recent memory. So you have to ask yourself, for what? How exactly is the United States, which she serves, benefiting from what she's doing? Is there an upside here for us? That's one question that people like John Kirby never think to ask. They just assume that China must be bluffing, just another backward third world government making huffy noises. Don't have to take them seriously, just like Russia. Well, they say they're going to invade Ukraine if we push Ukraine to join NATO. Who cares what they think? They're a gas station with a government. They're bluffing. That's what arrogance does to you. It blinds you to reality. So the question is, is China bluffing? What if they're not? What if in response to Pelosi's totally pointless trip to Taiwan, the Chinese decide to seize the Kinmen Islands, which are now governed by Taiwan and whose defense we've implicitly and effectively guaranteed for 75 years? Well, that could actually happen. The Chinese government is already making the kind of noises you would expect it to make before doing something like that. Here's a selection. Ahead of the stop, the Chinese government continued to ramp up their warnings, saying it undermines China's sovereignty and security. We hope U.S. officials will clearly understand the importance and sensitivity of the issue and how dangerous it would be if the visit actually happens. The Chinese claim Taiwan as their own, and there are concerns Beijing could use the visit as a pretext to ramp up military action in the area. Huh. Maybe that's bluffing. Maybe it's not, but the deeper question is, when's the last time American liberals built something? When is the last time Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden or any of these people, Susan Rice, created something worth having? Hmm. We'll give you a few minutes. Never. They break things. They show up. They make things worse. They move on to the next thing. They never apologize. They did it in Afghanistan. They did it in Iraq. They did it in Ukraine. They did it in Syria. They did it in Libya. Are they going to do it now with China? Breaking things. In fact, if you were trying to give Beijing a pretext to seize Taiwan, this is exactly the kind of trip you would take. And what would happen if Beijing seized Taiwan? Well, it'd be a humanitarian disaster for the Taiwanese. They would lose any semblance of self-determination. Democracy would die. So that's bad. 
But more to the point, it would be a disaster for us, for us, because it would make, and this has been the effect of virtually every policy to come out of the Biden administration, it would make China more powerful. How powerful is China? We understate their power, actually. China already makes 90% of the world's antibiotics. It makes 80% of the world's lithium batteries. 96% of the shipping containers used to transport goods across the world, mostly from China, are made in China. But one thing China does not yet control is the semiconductor industry. At the end of 2021, China held just 4% of the global semiconductor market. North America and the Asia-Pacific region are the dominant players. Now, semiconductors are not a small thing. In fact, they're essential to modern life. They're in everything, from brake sensors in your car, to your phone, to your computer. They're in everything. And as it happens, virtually all advanced semiconductors are made. Where are they made? Oh, they're made in Taiwan. The Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company makes 90% of the world's advanced semiconductors. It is by far the world's largest semiconductor foundry. Without the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, that would mean companies like Apple, Qualcomm, and many others could not function. That's a lot of the American economy. Last year, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company accounted for more than half of the total foundry revenue in the world. So maybe showing up in Taiwan would give Beijing a pretext to invade Taiwan and take over the world's largest semiconductor foundry. And that puts us in the beta position to an even greater extent, to put it mildly. Is that the goal of this trip? Could it be that Tony Blinken and Barack Obama and the rest of the people who are actually running the Biden administration, without the knowledge of Joe Biden, who can't remember anything at this point, could it be that all these people know perfectly well how reckless this is, know perfectly well what the effects could be, and they're doing it not just in spite of those effects, but because of those effects, because actually, at least on some gut level, they want to hasten the end of American hegemony, which is to say the end of the U.S. as we know it. That would explain why they sent Kamala Harris, of all people, to avert a war in Ukraine, knowing full well that Kamala Harris would read the notes they wrote for her and insist that Ukraine join NATO and then guarantee that Russia invades Ukraine, constricts the world's energy and food markets, and makes us weaker. Huh. Maybe they knew that would happen. Maybe they're not that stupid. Maybe that would also explain why they sent Nancy Pelosi over to Taiwan effectively as the administration's representative, even though Nancy Pelosi rivals Kamala Harris in her inability to form a coherent thought. Now, again, we alluded to this last night, but it's just true because we watch this stuff. We hope you don't. We hope you have a real life. But if you've seen Nancy Pelosi recently, since she turned 80, for example, two years ago, you know this is someone who is having a lot of trouble speaking. Here was Pelosi at a briefing back in November, for example. The other thing that we're getting are we're sending stuff over to the Senate. Well, it's... Most of the product that we've done is, except now we, we may have added in the last day or so, and some of what we added is Senate to the bill, like a hearing. Bernie doesn't like hearing. Excuse me. Bernie loves hearing. <laughs> Manchin doesn't want hearing in the bill and all that stuff. Um, so some is Senate-oriented, and then we have the family medical leave. We figured if they're putting things in, then we can put something in, if, even if Manchin doesn't like it. So... Um, uh, so we are getting some bird and privilege. I think I think mostly we're getting privilege scrub because privilege scrub is deadly to a bill. Bird ball is important. It's you have to take it out, but privilege violation can take you out. So at this point, August of 2022, Taiwan is the world's great flashpoint. 
It's the largest power with an aim it has articulated repeatedly over almost 80 years to invade a neighboring country, Taiwan. So there's no more delicate place diplomatically on the globe. So if you're sending that person to calm tensions or reassure our allies, you're probably not doing what you say you're doing. You may be doing the opposite. If you're trying to provoke your enemies and terrify your so-called allies, you'd probably pick Nancy Pelosi as your representative in Taiwan. What is going on here? Well, if you're wanting to understand the motive of the people in charge, consider this. At the same moment that we are clearly goading other countries into conflict with each other and with us, we are, meaning the Biden administration is, degrading our ability to participate or prevail in those wars. Our defensive capabilities have never been weaker, and that's not an accident. They did it. For example, the Central Intelligence Agency, whatever you think of it, we don't think much, kind of important to our country, certainly well-funded. Here's a recent recruiting ad from the CIA. I'm a woman of color. I am a mom. I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I am intersectional, but my existence is not a box-checking exercise. I am a walking declaration, a woman whose inflection does not rise at the end of her sentences, suggesting that a question has been asked. I used to struggle with imposter syndrome, but at 36, I refuse to internalize misguided patriarchal ideas of what a woman can or should be. Oh, you're intersectional with a generalized anxiety disorder? Come work in a critical federal agency. So if you're running an ad like that, not only are you not serious, you are trying to degrade and hurt the ability of the United States to defend itself, to perpetuate itself, to remain the United States for our grandchildren. That's exactly what, let's stop lying about it. That's exactly what you're doing. And it's not just happening at CIA. Nothing Joe Biden has done in the last year and a half has made our armed forces better prepared to fight wars. Instead, it has been one calculated humiliation after another for the U.S. armed forces. Vax mandates, anti-white ideology, sex changes, drag shows. Whatever is necessary to telegraph to the United States military, you are worthless. You are defending a country that does not deserve to be defended. Your traditions are disgusting. You're terrible. That's the message. Here's the latest. The VA has decided to desecrate military cemeteries. That'd be America's last remaining national shrine, our military cemeteries, desecrated with industrial wind turbines. One just went up in a Massachusetts national cemetery. So take three steps back. They are starting more wars while simultaneously making it harder for the United States to fight and prevail in those wars. A spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry said this morning that their army will, quote, never sit by idly. Yeah, well, you know what? We have an army, too. And would take strong measures. It won't measures sit by idly either. Don't tell our leaders where they can go and where they can't go. Defend I salute Nancy Pelosi for going there, for sending a message uh, that Taiwan is an ally. And, and just as we won't support Taiwan's independence, uh, and, and breaking away from this one China policy, uh, we will not stand idly by if, if, main, if mainland China decides to invade Taiwan. More childish posturing from people who have no idea what they're talking about and no skin in the game whatsoever. The truth is we're not in a position to prosecute a successful war against China. We should be. We should have been making defensive strategic moves for the past 20 years onshoring critical manufacturing 
building up a strong military and, yes, a strong CIA, not degrading them with identity politics and other pointless lunacy that detracts from the mission, which is to protect the United States. But that's exactly what we've done. Republicans in Congress have allowed it to happen. Oh, more funding for you. So whatever the motive here is, the effect is absolutely predictable. As with Afghanistan and Ukraine and COVID and pick nine other disasters, when what we're watching right now finally ends, the U.S. is likely to be weaker and China is likely to be stronger. So what does this mean? It means the beginning of the end of American influence in Asia, influence that we paid for with blood. And that's not an overstatement. More than half a million American servicemen were killed or wounded in the Pacific Theater in the Second World War and in Korea a few years after that. And as a result of their sacrifice and wise diplomacy, countries like Japan and South Korea and Singapore and the Philippines have all been in our orbit, the Western orbit, America's orbit for most of the last century. And that's been a good thing for all involved. Not perfect, but better than the alternative. But we're about to see the alternative thanks to whatever the motive, the lunacy of people like Pelosi and Biden. Harry Kazianis is the president of the Rogue States Project. He joins us tonight to assess where China is in all this. Harry, thanks so much for coming on. So I guess the question is, to what extent is China bluffing, if any? What do you think? Oh, Tucker, I'm going to be honest with you. They're not bluffing at all. They have been preparing for this scenario for 30 years. And if you go back to 1995, 1996, we had a similar situation with, with China when Taiwan's president was wanted to come back to Cornell University to visit his alma mater. We had a very similar crisis. But at the time, the United States was the overwhelming military superpower. We had no problems worrying about China. In fact, Chinese military officials couldn't even find our aircraft carriers. Today, the situation is very different. The Chinese have prepped for this scenario. They have thousands of ballistic cruise missiles, hypersonic missiles, carrier killer missiles. So if there was ever a war between the United States and China, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to attack with a bolt from the blue. They're going to destroy our satellites in orbit. They're going to destroy our communications equipment. We're not going to be fighting about transgender issues on TikTok anymore because TikTok's not going to work in the United States. And then they're going to destroy our aircraft carriers, destroy all of our bases in Asia. This has all been wargamed out. I've actually fought this war in simulators for over 10 years. You know what happens every time, Tucker? We lose. So, I, I mean, everyone prays it would never get to a point anywhere near what you described, but of course it could, and the Chinese have not been, I, I don't think, very subtle about telegraphing their intentions. In the face of this looming threat from this rising power, how has the entire United States Congress sat back and continued to fund a military that gets weaker and more politicized every year? I don't understand that. I, I don't either, Tucker, to be honest with you. I mean, a, a lot of this is misprioritization. I mean, I, I, it feels like we're forever stuck in a Cold War mindset. I mean, we're forever stuck in this idea that we're the dominant hegemon. A lot of our foreign policy thinking seems like it's stuck in the 1990s. You know, the unipolar moment, if you will, where the United States is exactly. omnipotent, can do anything. Nothing can happen to us. You know, we've got the Atlantic, the Pacific. We've got Canada and Mexico, and nothing can can permeate our, our you know, our space. But I think 9-11 proved that that you know, obviously can happen. And I, I think China proves that this threat is very real. And let's face it, Tucker, we're not ready for it. Yeah. And if this moment doesn't freeze the renewable energy cult in its tracks and makes a laughingstock of anybody who suggests turning our grid over to China, I, you know, I don't know, honestly, what, what will. Uh, Harry, great to see you, China. Thank you for that. Thanks, Tucker. So it's been more than two years since St. George Floyd died. And the country changed completely. That happened, of course, in Minneapolis, Memorial Day 2020. 
But whatever happened in Minneapolis? We know the city defunded its police. Is it a utopia now? Well, Laura Ingram was interested enough to go to Minneapolis to find out. She joins us live here from Minneapolis. And then our conversation with golfer Bryson DeChambeau. Okay, g'day, mate. 40 here. So there was a time and there was a space when I stood astride the internet like a proud feudal lord, all right? There was a time when I ruled my virtual kingdom, all right? I didn't have to concern myself with integrating into the wider world of big tech. I had my blog and I ruled my blog. I was king of my kingdom. I had the right of the first night. I loved, I hated, I laughed, I cried, I ate beans, I broke wind, I courted porn stars, I studied Talmud, I was self-sufficient, I was my own man. I was the master of my own domain. I cut down trees, I ate my lunch, I went to the lavatory. On Wednesdays, I went shopping and I had buttered scones for, for tea. I, I sewed on my blog. I planted on my blog and I harvested on my blog, right? I operated my blog. That's how I rolled. Then starting in 2007, social media began taking over and I began spending more time on Facebook and YouTube and eventually Twitter. And I started adapting to their terms of service. And I thought I was adapting to these big corporations, but in the process, I became changed. In the process, I internalized their terms of service and it increasingly regulated me. My story became overridden by their story. My hero system was supplanted by their hero system, right? So to, to adapt the lofty analysis of philosopher Ronnie Goodman in his terrific book on conservative oppression, I was progressively emasculated. I was stripped of my glorious self-sufficiency. And to retain any vestige of my former power and prestige now required not, not my blogging prowess, but cultivating the right relationships. I was transformed from a warrior to a courtier. Right? I was no longer footloose and fancy free. I became subject to the continuous regulation imposed by dependence on others. Right Now my value, it does not lie with my own efforts, but in the favor that I find with the almighty algorithm. Right? I'm no longer a free man. I'm no longer the master of my domain. I'm no longer the master of my virtual castle. Right? I now serve the prince of darkness. I'm surrounded by others using big tech. I must behave according to each of them in exact ranking, right? In exact accordance with their rank and with my own. I must learn how to adjust my gestures and my speech and my jokes exactly to these different situations and different forms of big tech. Like life has become a stock exchange in which my value is continuously assessed going up and down. Right? Videos are being stricken, right? Gone are the days in which joking could lead to mockery and from there to violent disagreement, and there to violence itself, all in the span of a few minutes. Gone to the days in which I could leap from the most exuberant pleasure to the deepest despondency on the basis of the slightest of impressions. For what matters now are others' impressions rather than my own. And the foremost task becomes impression management. The deep state took my Twitter account. You see, Laponius, you, you get it. You were once a feudal lord of your Twitter account. You had the right of the first night on your Twitter account. And you're saying, I don't care? You're saying, I don't care, bro? Man, Laponius says, 
that you haven't been that he hasn't been sufficiently sufficiently thanked for his seminal contributions <laughs> to this show. Okay, so why do we have a rise of Christian nationalism? I was looking at that that photo of Donald Trump with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tucker Carlson at that Saudi golfing event on Sunday. And so I just started thinking about the rise of Christian nationalism, and I told this is a new thing in America. So shock or surprise, I'm not an expert on Christian nationalism, but let me try to understand it from my own terms as an Orthodox Jew. So Orthodox Jews today are as a, a collective, as a collective, they are more observant, they're more educated in Torah than Orthodox Jews at any previous time in history. Why? Because in today's secular world, it takes far more extreme effort to identify as Orthodox. You don't get to don't get to be an Orthodox Jew by just you know following following along with with the stream of life. Look forward live stream. Start the show with a grand opening, as I assume rule over Earth, and then go to today's news. Well, I'm talking about the rise of Christian nationalism. All right, so. Just as today, Orthodox Jews have to go to far greater efforts to maintain their identity than did their predecessors. So too, Christians today have to go further to maintain their identity and their hero system, their whole basis of, of understanding themselves, their collective meaning system. All right. You have to become much more aggressive or your hero system, your meaning system how you understand yourself and the world becomes crushed by other competing meaning systems which are frequently privileged over your own. And I have more wonderful and fascinating insights into the growth of Christian nationalism. And I'm going to bring those to you right after we check back in with Tucker Carlson talking about what's going on in Minneapolis. So it was just over two years ago that a violent ex-con called George Floyd got arrested in Minneapolis for trying to pass a counterfeit $20 bill and promptly died of a fentanyl OD, or at least that's what the medical examiner apparently determined. I don't think we're allowed to say that on TV, but anyway, he died. And in response to his death, St. George Floyd's death, Democrats encouraged riots all over the country. They bailed out criminals. They paid for the whole thing. So you have to kind of wonder what happened to Minneapolis. We were wondering this the other day. It used to be one of the nicest cities in the world. It's not anymore. We just got this text from someone who's in Minneapolis, quote, this place is a freaking disaster. I can't believe anyone would live here. Shootings galore. I'm afraid to even go to the Mall of America. So that got us thinking we should go to Minneapolis and see what it's like. But then we found out that Laura Ingram, and not for the first time, had beat us to it. And she was already there. So she's about to join us live from Minneapolis. She just went to the third precinct, which is still abandoned after it was destroyed by rioters. She spoke to one officer went back to the scene for the first time since those riots of 2020. Watch. I think one of the biggest challenges is just working with the deficit of officers, uh, working on rebuilding the trust with the community, working on getting more cops to help us, and working with what limited resources we have now. Has the activist movement, which always seems to, in my view, be biased against law enforcement, has that made your job more difficult on a daily basis, just interacting with regular folks? Or... Oh, absolutely. And the more of that that gets put out in the media, it, it makes it tough for us to actually just do our jobs without being harassed and cameras interface when we're just trying to work. I mean, we're not, we're not trying to take away anybody's rights. We're just trying to do our job. 
So as we said, Laura Ingram has been on this story. Beat us to it. She's the host, of course, of the Ingram Angle, 10 p.m. Eastern. She's going to have a lot more on Minneapolis on our show tonight, but she's going to join us right now for a preview. Laura, thank you for doing this. What, what's your sense of how Minneapolis is doing? Well, I was so sad, Tucker. Um, I've been coming to Minnesota for, I don't know, 12 years every summer. As I have college uh, friends here. I've gotten to know the city. Um, other parts of the state. And it's such a great state. It's this amazing yes. people here. It's kind of quirky politically, as we know. But uh, I was here shortly after the riots, and it was, uh, as you can imagine, a total disaster. All businesses at total loss, burned to the ground, still smoldering, th third precinct abandoned. So I thought a couple of years later, let's go back. I was stunned at how bad it is in certain parts of Minneapolis. Third precinct, they're still operating out of a school. They don't even have a permanent uh, presence, a permanent building structure in uh, Minneapolis to this day. This is like 26 months after Floyd was killed. Uh, and you can feel it in the, in the officers. They're trying to you know, put on a brave face, and they're great people. But can you imagine having a deficit of 300 law enforcement in a city that is, we're seeing burgeoning crime, violence, even near the University of Minnesota, which is a great school. They're having problems there. So th this has got to be addressed, and you're going to need a, a real change in political leadership to do it. But it's very sad and infuriating, and as you reported at the time, and I did too, all too predictable. All too predictable. What's weird is that big companies paid for these riots. We put the list on the screen many times, but they haven't paid to rebuild one of America's nicest cities that they destroyed. So where's the Nike and Google and Facebook fund to rebuild Minneapolis? Some of the larger companies have rebuilt, like near that precinct. I think there's a Target and there's Cub Foods and a couple of others. But sort of the smaller businesses, as usual, Tucker, get the short end of the stick. And, and I think some black-owned businesses have gotten some help. But, I mean, I am shocked. One diner I'm going to take people to is actually uh, Derek Chauvin actually worked above it in the club above it. That was burned to the ground. So I go to that same location. I said, well, where's the, where's the rebuild? It's just like weeds. It's a whole lot of weeds it's now. Unbelievable. Nothing. Nothing's Some... been done. Shocking. So they destroy the city. They put this cop in prison for the rest of his life. We all have to pretend he committed murder, which he didn't. But whatever, we have to pretend it. And then they leave, and they move on to the next thing to destroy. So perfect. Uh, Lori Ingram, I appreciate the fact that you're on this story and, and your report from there tonight. Thanks so much. We'll see you at 10 Eastern for more on that. Thanks so much, Tucker. See you soon. So as we admitted last night, we broke our cardinal rule and got involved in a controversy that we don't know very much about. It has to do with golf. Um, and we interviewed Greg Norman. He made his case for a new golf league that he's the commissioner. Okay, I don't care about the new golf league. I want to get back to talking about Christian nationalism. Like, what the heck is going on? And I, I think it's just one more example of the sometimes deranged, sometimes extreme, sometimes petty uh, conservative outrage machine, which stems from conservatives feeling like the left has their their heel on our neck, all right? Just what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd, all right? That's how people on the right feel about life in the West today. So there's a terrific book by philosopher Ronnie Goldman, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. So Derek Chauvin was convicted of murder for 
you know, keeping pressure on George Floyd's neck for something like nine minutes. Well, people on the right feel like the left has been putting pressure on their neck for, for decades now. And so the right is lashing out. And sometimes it sounds quite deranged. Richard Spencer made, was it, no, Mickey Kaus made a good point that I mentioned on the show yesterday. He says he can't read these right-wing publications like American Greatness because they're so devoted to people who already share their point of view, right? There's, there's no attempt to meet people who are undecided. It's just speaking to true believers. And so a lot of right-wing lashing out is not very impressive, right? But that's what happens when someone's, like, got their heel on your neck. You're not always going to think rationally, competently. You're not always going to come across in the most impressive fashion. And so one of the responses to the left, you know, dominating our language, dominating our cultural institutions, dominating the ethos of the elite, right? dominating the stories that we live by, dominating the things that we say, right, is that in, in reaction, we don't always make a lot of sense. But there's no alternative here. We all live by stories, all right? We all make our meaning collectively. That's why we gather here together on this show, because even though the rest of the, the world says that, uh, yes, it is wonderful that uh, men can marry men and women can marry women, and it's wonderful that uh, men can become women by choice and then compete in women's sports, uh, the audience for this show is a tad skeptical of these new stories. So we make our meaning collectively, and together we reinforce what we understand, what is true, real, good, and beautiful. Right? So we understand that when there's same-sex marriage, that trashes our understanding of traditional marriage. Right? And so if we are to hold on to our traditional understanding of marriage, of our place in the cosmos, we have to go to far greater extremes than we did yesterday. So Christian nationalism, as I understand it, is just another reality-enhancing device for people who want to hold on to their story, for people who want to hold on to the meaning of words and concepts and traditions and traditional ways of uh, organizing a community from decades and centuries past, right? So... At a different time and place, right, the people who are now into Christian nationalism would have had no use for Christian nationalism. But given this time and this place, if you want to hold on to your traditional understandings of life, you need some extreme vehicle like a Christian nationalism. Now, the Christian story, the Christian hero system is increasingly discredited by our elites and by their institutions. So therefore, the Christian has to go to much more extreme lengths simply to stay in place. Right? If you're swimming and then you get caught in a riptide, right? you may be swimming at four miles an hour, but if the riptide is flowing against you at four miles an hour, you're going to have to swim at eight miles an hour just to keep your place. And so Christians who simply want to keep their place in the, the new world order, they have to swim twice as hard. Right? The Christian now has to go to far more extreme lengths to protect his story, to protect his understanding of himself. Right? And our understanding of ourselves completely depends upon our understanding of the world around us and our hero system. So one reason that people are so unhappy these days is that our natural, normal, and healthy sense of the superiority of our group 
is reduced by the presence of so many alternative hero systems in our midst, hero systems that are frequently privileged over our own. And so we see how all these other groups also see themselves as cosmically special. And that reduces our ability to believe that we're special, that we're chosen by God. Now, nationalism is really a, a belief in the largest possible extended family that we can strongly identify with. And nationalism is a mindset, and it's based on what do we think of our in-group, what is our commitment level to our in-group. And so an American nationalist right, is going to be influenced by race. So just because you're a civic nationalist, you're an American nationalist, doesn't mean that you're not also having components of racial nationalism and religious nationalism, right? Culture, geography, religion, class, race, these can all create varying levels and different types of nationalism. But it boils down to the more in common we have with others, the closer we feel to them. Diversity means we have less in common with others. And so to build a coherent, cohesive, high-trust society requires building up the dominant in-group, right? And one way of doing that is Christian nationalism. And so you see this in the trajectory of Christian nationalists like Nick Fuentes, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, and uh, Godwood Podcast. Uh, they became increasingly disenchanted by America, by Republicans, by the alt-right. So instead of building an in-group around something as socially stigmatized as white nationalism, they instead chose to build around Christianity. Christianity is more socially acceptable. For most normal people, it feels much better. Like it's easy to say Christ is king rather than to say Hitler did nothing wrong. So I don't think Christian nationalism in America has a lot to do with Christianity beyond it's an agreed upon in-group identity. It's an agreed upon story and hero system for people who don't have other strong group, strong in-group identities. So Christianity in America is very different from Christianity in Europe and Australia. So if you're a Christian in Europe or Australia, if you go to church every week, then you would generally speaking lead a life that is quite different from the lives of other people. That's not so true in America. As my father would tell me, religion in America is a mile wide and an inch deep. So in America, Christianity is a way to socially signal that you're a good person. And so Christian nationalism is a way to socially signal that you're a good person who wants to associate with other good persons and put their interests first and try to hold on to traditional understandings of life and what is good and beautiful against the onslaught of you know more privileged left-wing hero systems stories and in-group identities that uh, come from our dominant elite and from our dominant institutions. Let's get a little Robert Wright and Mickey Kaus. Why did he go downhill? Um, Talk this, uh, to with there's, there's, there's an un-PC version, which I will give you, which is there was a wave of Persian refugees that don't care that much about education, and they displaced the other Jews who were here before, and Wait, the other the the schools. Other, wait, the Persians are Jews now. You don't mean that. The Persians are mostly Jews now. Now some are of them are Muslim. Now wait, some of them are Muslim. These are Jews from Jews. Iran. Yes, they're not mainstream Iranians. If you talk to Iranians, oh, no. there's a show about them called The Shahs of Sunset. There's a. If you talk to regular Iranians, they'll say, "Well, these aren't Iranians. <laughs> these are these weird Jews." And that, that's who we got in Beverly Hills. Uh, and they tend to be quite right wing. They voted for Trump, hmm. and and all the rabbis are horrified by how conservative their population, their congregations have gotten. So they do go to synagogue. They're they're, they're practicing. Some of them, yeah. A lot of them, yeah. They're, they're, they're religious. They're mm -hmm. just not... Uh... Anyway, they're just... They, they don't... They're not like the old Jews who, who saw education as their way to the top. Right. And, and they're... They, they, the good old Jews. You know, they... they it, it's a weird culture. They're, they're... A lot of them, you know, their family is their way to the top. And a lot, of them, a, lot, a lot of them do really well, but when they get into Harvard, their mothers cry for weeks because it means 
the kid's going to have to leave home and uh, it's supposed to stay in the house for 20 till, until they're 26. So it's, it's just a strange, it's a strange, weird culture, but it hasn't done schools any good. Now, my um, mother didn't want me to leave Texas for college. I mean, she wasn't uh, possessive about it, but I mean, in her heart, it was kind of clear. Well, I think, yeah, most mothers don't want their kids to leave. Um, but uh, this is like, this is, this is much, this is more tight knit than that. This is like, you know, anyway. Um, and there's a weird sexual double standard. That goes, anyway, it's, you don't want to know, but um, the schools have got that down. Anyway. Uh, the sexual double standard being that the, the, the girls aren't expected to go off to college. The mothers tell them, and I've seen like a, a sort of uh, panel discussion among women, women complaining. The mothers tell their daughters, honey, can't you wear your skirts a little shorter mm. to attract men? Mm. But if the daughters have sex, they're dead. So well, they have to walk a, they have to walk a, a fine line. Pretty fine line. They have to walk a fine line and, and there's a, they, they don't like it. And it's not a culture I think that's doomed to, uh, it's a little like the Shakers. They're not doomed to. And it's not like the Shakers. It's going to die out. Shakers weren't allowed to have sex even after marriage. Right. But at the point, is it, it, it's an untenable situation. People are not going to stand for this. I, I agree. That it made, that uh, makes so, um, the, um, a lot of them become Orthodox Jews. They say, well, fuck it. If I can't have sex, I'll just become an Orthodox Jew. Um, so, Mickey. Anyway. Is it uh, time for a little more Lou Reed? Sure. Okay. The Beatles. Uh, we're not going to do any more Lou Reed. In fact, let's uh, let's do a little uh, Steve Bannon. I want everybody to understand deeply exactly what we're doing here. Okay, exactly what's going on because you're going to be part of it, and particularly want people to come and step in forward and say, "Hey, I I, I want to be one of those four thousand shock troops." Or there's going to be lots of other opportunities, lots of other opportunities. Drop the phrase, "Drain the swamp." This is beyond that. This is taking on and defeating and deconstructing the administrative state. We're going to do that deeply because you're going to be part of it. Deeply because you're going to be part of it. And particularly want people to come and step in forward and say, hey, I, I, I want to be one of those 4,000 shock troops. Want to be one of those 4,000 shock troops. Or there's going to be lots of other opportunities. Lots of other opportunities. Because you're going to be part of it. Pretty exciting. You want to be part of Steve, Steve Bannon's uh, shock troops? But it is develops that guilt and yeah, no, in, I mean that's. But in in there you see it literally at the highest levels, or at least as it concerns uh, the Trump's campaign. I mean, Bannon was on some level. He was sort of at least in the early going. He was sort of the the brain, right? So simply yeah. the brain of uh, Trump's um, uh, office. Uh, and he, uh, in Trump, though Trump also is irrational and, you know, and I'm not saying it's entirely because of Christianity, but because I don't think, I don't find him to be a terribly Christian person per se, but he, um, but there is nothing there to ground them. He's in this sort of milieu of irrationality and expression of of it as well. Luke. How's it going, bro? Rukashem. Excellent. What's new, man? Long time no talk. Uh, not much in my, uh personal news although uh, today's michigan primaries okay well uh that looks like a new shirt is that a new shirt no i haven't bought a new shirt in years but i have uh i have like a hundred of these like uh short sleeve shirts like this okay cool and uh how are you doing with the uh with the weed you were you were going off it for a while are you you back on it or what's what's the latest yeah completely off it i don't even think uh tissue above i think i'll do without tissue above so uh pesach i didn't um do i have a tiny bit on pesach so i might have had it a little like i finished my supplies last sukkah 
and I might have had a very tiny bit on Pesach, but uh, yeah, basically none for almost a year now. And uh, what about your interest in uh, Hinduism? Have you been to any Hindu temples or any Hindu events since I spoke to you last? I went to uh, a few this summer. Not much. I, I really haven't been going anywhere since COVID. So uh, I haven't been to synagogue since uh, Rosh Hashanah. I went to two outdoor uh, or three three uh, outdoor Hindu events this summer. And what was that like? Rosh Hashanah, you know, like... Uh, it's tough to know. You know, I've been reassessing my identity. I've actually been doing a lot of research. We can review church and ent entropy. We focus on uh, your know, consciousness. So I did a lot of research into uh, the self. I even started writing essays because I was saying, like, you know, the stream. You got you got a book or something. So uh, Jennifer encouraged me to start writing uh, an essay. So I, I would try. At first, I tried to do one every week, but it's very time consuming. So I've been writing like average like once every two weeks at this point i've written 10 essays now um and the the research now i'm doing is actually similar to what you're doing on uh self identity identity formation um you might focus more on politics but i'm focusing more on uh you know psychology i'm not sure if you're familiar with like narrative identity or uh, narrative reasoning so that's uh, currently what i'm researching right now and who are the thinkers that you're investigating? Um, well, I wrote a paper going back to like the, you know, the Greeks and you know, Locke and Hume and uh, James. Uh, so for, for this upcoming, I, I think the term self was generally used till about the 1950s. And then the 1950s, uh, Eric Erickson if you're familiar with them, I think yes. he had a adopted Jewish parents or his father uh, was. Uh, so he starts using the word identity. And then uh, this concept of a narrative identity, which might be interesting to you, you probably heard some some about it, but, but basically saying that we create our own identity and it's kind of like, like a narrative, like in Hollywood, and there's different mechanisms. So there's a guy, McAdams, um, uh, you say Erickson was one of the first, uh, Marcia uh, Adams, uh, Ricoeur, a French talker that talks about political uh, political identity, um, mostly psychiatrist. So I, I could name I can name a few. Uh, Schechter, uh, you know, I was just reading today, um, but uh, it's pretty interesting. I've been checking some of your content off and on, or actually reading your blog. Because it's kind of you know long watching your content, and I don't really care that much about Tucker or some of the other stuff you play. But I've been checking your blog somewhat, and I noticed that you've been talking a lot about uh, identity and related to nationalism and uh, politics. I've been focusing more on the theoretical mechanisms of identity formation, um, you from a psychological cognitive level. And how is your sense of personal identity different? today say from a year ago um i think it, it's much less jewish i think my central identity was basically just jewish at least in my own uh you know that, that was the front part in my uh your main thrust 
uh, but since I, you know, COVID-19, I haven't really been connected to the Jewish community and Judaism is a communal religion. You're like, uh, you know, I, I put on my tefillin every day and, you know, try to you know, keep some level of Sabbath and kosher, but uh, Judaism is a communal religion. So uh, I think that's fallen a little bit of my identity. So James talks about three, you know, there's the material identity, the social identity, and the spiritual identity. And the material identity is uh, your family, possessions, uh, health, our body is where the social identity is our interaction with others. And because I'm not really interacting with that many people, I've been focusing more, you know, I, I work with my family and, uh, you know, my father's not Jewish. My mother is 100, you know, 99 plus percent ethnically Ashkenazic Jewish, but she's hardly religious. And so, uh, you know, Jennifer uh, is not Jewish. Most of the people I talk with aren't Jewish. So it's, and the research I'm doing has uh, been less focused more on science and pure psychology. So I think I've shifted my identity to where, you know, if you if you asked me a few years ago, like Judaism, at least from my own perspective, would have been the driving force behind basically everything I do. That that uh, you not so much. Although Judaism is probably still the you know, the biggest force in my identity. And is this in large part because of, of COVID and the social isolating that comes with the, the COVID pandemic? Yeah, I mean, we've discussed this many times. Judaism is a communal religion. And I say I'm not really part of the community. Like, I, like I, I became very Jewish. I study, I, I try to keep the mitzvahs and various things. But, uh, you know, like I know a lot of the community, uh, but I'm not really, a, you know, like an integral big part of the community. So COVID, you know, kind of hit like that, that, uh, you know, like I'm not really that integral part of the Jewish community. So it made me reassess my identity. And uh, what about participating in Reform Judaism? You used to do that. I mean, not, you'd go to their events and you'd, you'd help out. God forbid. Yeah, I, mean, I used to promote and I, I had a, you know, kind of like a universalist, but Orthodox bent and they, they, they didn't like me that much, you know, like, they, I mean, they had their own angle that they wanted to go. They hired this Harvard uh, liberal rabbi who's, uh, you know, taking the summer off. And they had this hugely successful fundraising campaign. And uh, they got like $5 million. And God forbid, the building's like a money pit. So they're trying to do construction, not even like build a new building, just fix it up. And now they say they need six six point three million dollars, so it became like extremely aggressive fundraising. Where, like you know, if you go to one of their events, like they just really hard hit you up for money. And because they're doing such a you know used to have like no budget when I first went there, uh, the you know it's just a rundown building. They could hardly keep the heat on. People donated food for events. It had less than a hundred thousand dollar year budget, and now you know, now they have like you know, mostly these like feminist women, half a million dollars of salary in this fancy building. And uh, they want like, you know, $10,000 donation, you know, so like these huge amounts. So uh, I just uh, parted ways, you know, like, uh, you know, they won, they took over the synagogue. They're doing their own thing, mostly like, you know, liberal activism or, or like a community with uh, a handful of people with uh, younger kids. So 
I largely just gave up on it. I, I went to a few synagogue events. Uh, I saw that uh, Leela Corwin Berman, I got that book autograph I mentioned to you, the uh, Jewish uh, Philanthropic Complex. I think you remember that yeah. book I mentioned to you. Yeah. So she came and spoke at uh, Temple Bethel where I had my bar, mit bar mitzvah as a kid. And uh, I knew the donor of the event. or like, uh, And uh, so I went, I got my book autographed. Um, but no, I'm, I'm not really affiliated with the reform. You know, most of what I did was trying to promote kind of like just more like an orthodoxy or Judaism in general. And that went in direct conflict with uh, the new management at the synagogue so much that they probably didn't even like me coming around. And out of out of those three places, like Hindu events, Orthodox events and uh, reform events, uh, where do you feel most comfortable these days? I feel comfortable at all of them. I think I, if I went back to the young Israel, I'd even feel comfortable there. But I don't feel like a part of the community. You know, it's like I could walk in, I know, I know people. So I, I went to the Hindu events. I knew like half the people, a lot of people like, hey, how's it been? Um, but, uh, you know, I think the central community is, you know, in into the management, you know, on the board of directors, or more likely they have kids and they get together and try to raise their kids in the same way. So I'm not like an insider in any of those communities, uh, you know, the Jewish community from Orthodox to Reform or uh, the, the Hindu community. Um, I, I, they have actually uh, an outdoor picnic at the downtown synagogue. I assume I would know half the people there. Um, you know, if I went and, you know, there'd be a handful of people that would be friendly. And I tried to avoid politics. So, uh, you know, there's levels of community. I'm sure you're in a similar situation where, you know, you could go to a synagogue, you know, half the people, a handful of people will come over, like, how's it been? Um, but like, you know, I, I haven't spoke to the people on the phone. We're not really that, that uh, close or tight. And for the in, inter-congregation, you know, their life has went on and, you know, maybe they noticed I haven't been coming around. Uh, but that's about it. No one like reached out to me and was like, uh, you know, where you've been. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what about with regard to COVID? Have you stayed healthy? Thank God I haven't got COVID. I, I, you know, God forbid I traveled with my family. Uh, we buried my, my grandfather, uh, my, my father's parents, and they have a, a family graveyard in Missouri, uh, ironically like a non-denominational like they were obviously christian but uh, uh weren't that christian even going back a few a few hundred years and have a family graveyard that's uh, non-denominational and so we went and uh buried the cremated remains god forbid my both my grandparents all four of my grandparents got cremated but we buried uh their cremated remains in our family cemetery in missouri and uh, that was the first time I went anywhere. You know, like my family's all vaccinated, and to some extent, like back to normal, sitting in restaurants, hotels. I was the only one wearing masks, uh, but uh, I didn't wear a mask in the car with my family. But I basically wore a mask everywhere I went, and uh, you know, our family went to restaurants, and I, went, I got vegetarian a few times. So that was the most risk I put myself in COVID in uh in two years 
Like I, I went to a symphony or orchestra. My parents have like partial season tickets to the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. And uh, my dad wasn't feeling good last minute and couldn't go. So gave me tickets, <laughs> gave me his tickets. And I invited my friend from Detroit, Deshaun, who, uh, you know, people who watch my channel, the black Jewish Republican uh, who's now working at Amazon um, to come. And so we went to the Detroit and they had to, you had to have a vaccine passport to go. And so I thought it was going to be wasted. They wouldn't let me in and he wasn't vaccinated either, but they gave us a test. So uh, that was like a month and a half ago. And uh, they gave us like a swab and tested us. So we tested negative and uh, wore masks and were able to go to the symphony. So that was the first time I was tested for COVID-19 to go to the symphony. And I tested negative, uh, but I wore my mask and social distance. Uh, this weekend, going to the my grandfather, my grandparents' funeral ceremony was the closest. Um, I assume I don't have COVID, but uh, if I don't have any symptoms, I won't bother testing myself. But this is the most risk I've been in in two years because I've you know I've been able to uh, largely just avoid being around people, crowds, indoor. And have you had to pay a price for not being vaccinated? Um. No, I mean, my parents have nagged me, but, uh, you know, when the numbers were high, I wore a mask even indoors around my parents. Um, you know, if my dad asked me, I wear a mask. Um, my sister had, like, issues with her daughter. He came and visit and, and, like, having to get tested or isolate if you're around someone non-vaccinated. So I, I kept the rules, you know, uh, um, wore my mask. Um, you know, the symphony, they had a vaccine passport, but you were able to get, uh, you know, show a negative test. And they actually tested me on the spot uh, right right before it. So uh, not really. You know, like if I went, they might, you know, like, I haven't went back to my local synagogue that now is back indoor. Uh, a lot of the places have dropped the vaccine mandate. Um, some of the synagogues used to have a vaccine mandate or a mask required if you're not vaccinated. And I think now the numbers are low enough that uh, almost all the places have uh, that have now returned indoors and are not wearing masks have also dropped the vaccine mandate. I'm not sure if it's the same there in L.A. if like the synagogues still have a vaccine mandate or at this point they've dropped it. And how do people relate to you in in Hindu settings? I mean, I assume you go there wearing a kippah. Are they curious? Are they how do they relate? A lot of them are philo-Semitic, so I've talked about it with them. You know, some of them, you know, I guess are multicultural, so they just like another another part of multiculturalism. A lot of them feel like the more multicultural, the better. Um, and like, I help them out. Like, I used to donate money semi-regularly, and I used to help out in the kitchen. And, uh, you know, people would notice that, like, I was helping out. So people were generally pretty friendly to me. There might be a handful of people that uh, I never spoke with, but uh, and as I say, among the Indian crowd, there was strong streams of philo-Semitism, especially one of the temples is in a semi-Jewish neighborhood, upper middle class. So I said there, there's uh, strong streaks of philo-Semitism. So the subject came up uh, quite often and it was usually in a positive way. Interesting. And 
have you been doing regular streams with Charles Muskwitz? The last few weeks, like, like God forbid, he finally got permanently axed from YouTube. And uh, you're kidding, most... he got removed from YouTube. Well, he's been uh, kind of you know an election truther, and he wrote a he wrote he, he's you know thank God he's a you know keeps on putting out books a few a year, and he wrote a book you know God forbid he called the Biden coup, and uh, he just kept at it and he kept on getting uh, warnings, and uh, I think they just have no mercy on uh, the election. So so uh, you know he was an election truther. He probably still is, and. Uh, so we were streaming. He's on Rumble. The la you know the last few weeks we switched back. We were doing it ten at night, um, but yeah, we'll probably pick back up. And uh, I, I wanted to reassess, like, because he kind of just goes on his rambles, because uh, you know he's been talk radio, so it'll, it'll be the show, and like half of the show will be kind of his like generic things he rambles about, which is uh, kind of like his Trumperism, Republicanism. Yeah, keep going. And, uh, you know, he's kind of like, uh, he's like, you will call him a conspiracy theorist, although he's probably mainstream like Trump Republican, but he, he likes to blame like globalists. So it's like he'll reject anti-Semitic and fight back against anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. But he likes to talk about like a they, uh, you know, like globalists or people that are, purposely like you're rigging and ruining society and he goes on these long rambles which to me are just kind of pointless and irritating he doesn't really have a crowd none of the, and uh hardly any of the people that used to tune in uh from my side that came in is uh you know i guess my viewers a handful of them still watch but but very few because I, I guess you know there's not much value proposition in his uh repetitive rambles so you're a streamer like he's streaming less but he's also like you talk radio so he could just do the same ramble tell the same stories again and again and that's uh you know definitely not my style and it, it gets kind of trying but but you know, like he's he knows a lot you know he's uh he keeps on landing interviews he had paul manafort interview a few weeks ago wow Are you uh, kidding? <laughs> uh, he worked hard for that like he, he yeah. even got the naomi wolf uh, you know, Corsi still talking to E. Michael Jones regularly, and and he's a smart guy. Like he probably reads many newspapers, periodicals, and he and he's pumping out books. Like he's still pumping out like uh, two books a year, although not really like full books, and they're not. Uh, you know, I don't know how many copies sell, uh, but in that extent, like I enjoy talking with him. He's a knowledgeable, uh, proactive, uh, you know, author and uh, conservative personality. It just gets kind of tiring listening to his uh, repetitive uh i don't know what to call it you know preaching or, or tirades or, or you know very various things and 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 like i warned him i was like you're gonna get banned and uh you know he'll, he'll like talk to the censors like like uh in some nonsensical ways like you know he'll just start talking like i know the censors i know you're listening um but uh you know and then it's tough to know who's actually listening like because he's not very interactive you're definitely much more interactive so he, he's still trying to take live calls and we do occasionally get live calls, but now he got kicked off YouTube. And, and just when I got him to like get the chat and start talking to the chat, uh, but he hasn't really taken my advice on how to grow the audience. And uh, he hasn't really been that successful in growing his audience. 
And uh, how about your weekly chats with Jen? What's been going on there? Um, you're pretty good because uh, we're both doing research into consciousness and psychology. So actually, uh, you got to work together with this uh, guy out of San Francisco, researcher. Um, we stabilize. We, we get like 100, 150 views, 10, 10 viewers. Most of the political, we, we basically just don't talk politics. We don't talk about Judaism. And we talk almost all about science and consciousness, psychology. And uh, we stabilized an audience. She became a semi-regular modern day debates. Uh, your T-jump and uh, your certain philosophy uh, discord servers. So we've stabilized a little bit of an audience and uh, you know, most of the audience that uh, had followed me from your channel eventually gave up and uh, maybe they'll pop in the chat for a few minutes, but we just don't talk about uh, politics or, or, or Judaism. So, so most of them gave up on weekend review of Jennifer, but uh, in terms of me and her streaming, it's carrying on good. It's pretty successful. In, in, at least in for us to share our research that we both do a lot of research and thinking about topics and just to meet once a week and uh, discuss it, uh, you know, has been pretty successful. So what have been the most controversial? Success in growing, so. yeah, she, about... We had a thousand subs. She chose not to monetize. And uh, she still has kind of a junk computer that, uh, you know, only has like 360 DPI or occasionally has problems so we haven't been successful in like you know growing growing the show but in terms of we're both pretty satisfied and you'll get like 100 plus views each week and and uh, you know a little bit of a live audience and do you still start the show with a nigun you know it's funny i i switched to analyzing secular music because i went through all the nigunum that like i i i knew it took like over a year i did like over 100 and uh I started talking about the hero's journey in music to explain Hasidic music. And then I started saying like, well, you could use this understanding to, an uh, to analyze popular songs. So like the last six months I've been analyzing popular music and kind of, uh, um, so this week I did uh, John Lennon's working class hero of uh, the week before uh, uh, Bob Seger's on the road, on the road, uh, 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 on the stage or on the road um so and i i do a little like karaoke so unfortunately like yeah that shifted away i'm no longer doing a niggin but we're still opening it up with like a little chant and uh, i give my little like uh, uh sociological psychological take on uh you know popular music from america mostly classic rock and uh who are your favorite uh practitioners of classic rock I stopped listening to it, so a lot of stuff that you know, I, I listened to as a kid, or just top five hundred songs. I did uh, you know Hotel California, um, the Eagles. Uh, you know, said this week uh, you know, John Lennon. Usually I have some sort of lesson where I'm trying to say, well, this is a popular song, but it has some sort of like deeper spiritual or social meaning, and. Uh, but yeah, I, I liked uh, you know, generally classic rock, uh, hard rock when I was a kid, even into like alternative. And I had a thesis about the degeneration of American culture as seen in the music. You know, saying what I call the love song to the lust song, 
and uh, actually Gottward uh, made a video about that on his own channel, which uh, kind of led me to doing it because I was still doing chants, and he was talking about '60s movie. You know, where in the in the '60s you could just have a song like you know "Falling in Love" or you know "Happy Ending," uh, "Boy Meets Girl" and gets married, and they have a happy ending, and uh, you know, then the seventies, you start having uh, the decline of the hippie era, that where people realize that you know, even like the Beatles, the the rise of the Rolling Stones, the change in the direction of the Beatles, and the various music where it wasn't so optimistic anymore, and then uh, like the bar disco song, where you have first a rise of serial monogamy to uh, promiscuity, like in the eighties, I was saying like Billy Joel uh you know kind of like bar lounge music serial monogamy to uh the late 80s 90s where you kind of have the breakdown in marriage and degeneracy so i analyzed uh like george michael careless whisper and uh, what, what i'll call this the change from the love song to the lust song i'm not sure if you follow enough music yes. to think about that like you know even in the 60s like the beatles uh like she loves me yeah 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 i saw her standing there they're basically semi-wholesome love songs. And even the Beatles, like I did the Eric Clapton's Layla, which is somewhat a degenerate song. I think the song Layla was written about uh, George Harrison's model wife. and uh, But uh, she still divorced George Harrison and married Eric Clapton. So even he was kind of degenerate, he was saying, he, you know, he had uncontrollable sexual attraction towards another man's wife. Still, they divorced and then got married to Eric Clapton. Uh, you know, but by the time you get to the 80s, uh, uh, you know, I, I did the Def Leppard song, Love Bites, that like, I don't want to touch too much, baby, making love to you might drive me crazy, where you know, even the concept of marriage doesn't even exist anymore. And uh, you, you know, it's no longer a love song, uh, but, you, but uh, you know, the lust song. And I would say in like today's days, and this actually came from Godward on uh, what he was mentioning on one of his shows, uh, uh but you know that basically all modern music is is lust songs and then also in the 90s where you have uh kind of the rise of the incel and uh you know so you have the love song to the lust song and then you have the break away from the lust song to the incels like maybe like nirvana Allison chains and even like this dark glorification of death like the grunge music of the 90s and I analyzed Alice in Chains and, uh, um, you know, some of the 90s music offspring where you see that, uh, you know, God forbid, there's this glorification of death from like existential angst of maybe, you know, John Lennon, I said, I looked at Working Class Hero, where you have a strong critique and criticism, existential angst to uh, in the 90s where there's just this feel of hopelessness. And, uh, you know, if you analyze the lyrics of the music, and also the structure of the music, like uh, the key, you know, like the minor keys and uh, the the formula structures of the song that they've changed to, uh, you know, to being more uh, depressive. And which you... is the inner society. That, that was my thesis. You know, the degeneration of American culture mirrored in what, the, you know, the popular music. And do you love any lust songs? Um, well, I was thinking as a kid, like I, I, I liked, you know, Careless Whisper, George Michael, 
I like that Def Leppard uh, Love Bites. I like that Offspring song, uh, um, Self Esteem. And I knew what the lyrics, like I was young, I knew what the lyrics said. I, I remember I was, you know, in African American majority schools, like Two Live Crew came out. And, uh, you know, so that was the music I liked as a kid. And I guess it was just kind of normal that, uh, you know, the Lust songs were the most popular songs of the time. That's why I listened to. That's what I liked. And then when I went to Israel, I basically renounced it. And I saw the strong criticism, especially the Haredim, that were like, this stuff's just degenerate. This stuff's horrible. And then, you know, looking back, I still kind of like the music and analyzing the musical structure of it. Uh, and to some extent, you know, even the lost songs, the degenerate songs are, are you know, probably higher quality musical creations than the than the Jewish synagogue stuff. Uh, but but it really is degenerate, you know, like uh, any of these songs, just looking at the lyrics and uh, um, you know, maybe like Billy Joel just came, you know, like a transitional figure where he wasn't that degenerate. He was like transitionary. Uh, but, you know, the stuff I grew up listening to, just uh, reading the lyrics, talking about it, it, it was just uh, horribly degenerate. I mean, you're there in L L.A., San Bernardino Valley. So, you know, that degeneracy is, is normal. And even, to, you know, on my family trip, uh, you know, the radio, the, these degenerate songs are playing everywhere. You know, like uh, my parents listening to in the car, uh, you know, the gas stations, restaurants, uh, places of business, everywhere you go. You know, the, these are, you know, the, the top 500 songs. Almost all the songs I looked at, like the Rolling Stone uh, has their list of top 500 songs. And I, I would guess like more than half of them are, basically just degenerate songs lost songs okay i've got to i got to step away for a minute can you just uh maybe talk about some of your your recent shows with jen or you know talk about your writing and uh, i'll be back in in five minutes can you hold the fork okay, if you don't mind, i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about the michigan primaries yep, yep go go ahead talk about anything you want i'll be back in a few okay. minutes yeah michigan primary results are coming in right now and uh so the big news in Michigan is uh, so you have the governor's race that has uh, Taylor Dixon, this woman who's very pro pro life. She was endorsed by Trump. It looks like she's winning by a landslide. Um, in terms of Jewish national news, Andy Levin looks like he's going to lose to Haley Stevenson. So. Uh, even though Andy Levin is the son of Carl uh, Sander Levin and the nephew of uh, Carl Levin, he became you know liberal. He's actually part of the Detroit Reconstructionist con Congregation. I have on my YouTube page when he came to the downtown synagogue, and uh, really he voted for on all the ways that actual vote, uh, you know, the in line with uh, Israel. But but his comments and APAC put like four or five million dollars into his opponent. And uh, I knew a lot of you know, liberal Jews that uh, they even had a Jews for Andy Levin. Right now, almost 50% of the vote. Stevens has 31,000, Levin has 22,000. So it looks like Levin is gonna lose. So uh, that is my parents' district. That district has the majority of Jews. Rashida Tlaib, who has part of Detroit, and Southfield, 
where I live. So Rashida Tlaib, there's been redistricting. It used to be Brenda Lawrence, um, who's actually lives in my neighborhood, uh, worked as the uh, manager of the post office, and she stepped down and they redistricted because Michigan lost a district. So Rashida Tlaib now has my district and with 10% of the vote, she has close to 7,000, close to 60%. Janice Winfrey, the number two, who, who uh, some of the pro-Israel people put a few million dollars behind, has 25% of the votes, only 10% counted, uh, but uh, they didn't even spend that much money because Tlaib was almost a given to win. You know, like almost everyone thought that uh, Tlaib was gonna win. So it looks like, um, Tlaib will be my next uh, congresswoman. Uh, okay, because... I'm, I'm I'm back. Is there much uh, is there much uh, tension with between Arabs and Jews in, in Michigan? So I missed I missed the last couple of minutes. Well, I'm saying there's two key races in my in right near me. So Rashida Tlaib, Michigan lost a lost a seat due to depopulation. So they had redistricting. The African-American woman who was the former congresswoman decides not to run again. So Tlaib is running in now that includes most of Detroit and uh, Southfield, where I live. And it looks like she's going to win handily, close to 60% of the vote with the multiple candidates, maybe the second getting at 25%. Right, right, right. But my question was, is there much tension between Jews and Arabs in, in Michigan? No, very little. I mean, we live like tens of miles. We live like 10 miles apart. And uh, generally, we're both Democrats. So, you know, it's possible that if there was more direct interaction, there would be occasionally when war breaks out in Israel. Uh, it's not like L.A. or Brooklyn. There's no violence because of because uh, there's no community overlap. You're know, saying that we the 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 Arab community doesn't border at all the Jewish community. That's at least ten miles of a mostly African American buffer zone. So uh, occasionally, like in uh, op-ed columns or political statements uh, relating Israel, you'll see a little bit of tension. Uh, but no, generally there's no tension uh, between the Arab and Jewish uh, communities. And you know, with the redistricting. Uh, the majority of the Arabs and about 25,000 Jews are in the new district. So before Tlaib had, you know, like a good amount of the Arabs uh, and only a, a tiny bit of Jews in Detroit, but now she has a, one of the largest Jewish neighborhoods. So probably like 20,000 Jews, but like 100,000 Arabs in her district. So uh, the political split will be a little different and the majority like 50,000 Jews live in an area so ironically Andy Levin who's the son of Sandra Levin nephew of Carl Levin it has became progressive and a critic of Israel and so the APAC and the Jewish organizations all supported uh, this non-Jewish uh, woman Haley Stevens who's in her 30s and has uh, you know generally been pro APAC friendly but uh, he was kind of an unknown just a woman in her 30s uh, that got a lot of funding from different sources, and it looks like she's going to win. So it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. I don't even know if that hit you in LA. The, you know, the, you know, the Jewish uh, 
uh, you know, work to uproot Andy Levin. And it's a little bit different than just like a, you know, progressive Jew because, uh, you know, he comes from the Michigan Democratic Jewish uh, dynasty and Carl Levin was generally an APAC member to the last year of Congress and uh, very pro-Israel. So, uh, you know, him losing. Uh, so, yeah, it's 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 going to be interesting. Rashida Tlaib is going to be my congresswoman. And uh, how about how much interaction do you get to have with Arabs and Muslims? Um, minimal. I mean, when I was in university, I, I dealt with a lot of Arabs because, uh, you know, it's university. It's very diverse in Detroit all the time. You know, like if you're in Detroit, any form of business, uh, civic engagement, Arabs are there's hundreds of thousands of them in Metro Detroit, uh, you know, even by my parents' house. Uh, that you know, there's mosques, there's Muslims and Arabs everywhere, uh, but you know, there's not uh, the the contiguous community where they live as an Arab community is you know in Dearborn, which is uh, you know ten miles away. So even though you know there's Chaldeans, Christian Arabs, there's Muslims interspersed all over, but not a you know large uh, community in my area. But but yeah, I, I see Arabs. You know, daily, you know, if you go to the supermarket or, uh, you know, Starbucks or anywhere, you're going to bump into Arabs. And, uh, you know, generally it's pretty amicable. You know, if you ask them about Israel, Palestine, they probably, you know, they probably, or the Middle East, it might uh, come into an argument. But, uh, you know, generally it's Detroit, like people are just trying to get ahead. And, uh, you know, both Arabs and Jews. You know, are, are you know, staunch you know, multicultural Democrats in the you know like uh, the old school uh, alliance of uh, minorities? And uh, are there any particular hot button issues that uh, you and Jen hit? I mean, do you guys have passionate disagreements? Yeah, I mean, usually about philosophy and theology. We don't talk about politics or religion. So, I mean, we'll talk about more like spiritual principles. You know, we argue all the time and, uh, you know, like debate strategy, philosophy, uh, but, you know, because we avoid politics and identity, you know, we don't talk that like about race or identity, nationalism. So, uh, you know, no, nothing, uh, you know, that intense or, or that would cause uh, cause much dispute like that. And do you think you guys have a similar personality? Yeah, we're probably pretty similar. I said that we, so we focus mostly on mutual research. So like she listens to my research and gives feedback and will argue and I'll listen to her research. And, uh, you know, so that, that's basically what keeps it going is, uh, your mutual research and we'll call the, the consciousness studies which uh, has some overlap to what you're doing because uh, your know, self and identity to somewhat the, the consciousness could be interchangeable with the word self and uh, identity formation. So when you talk about like nationalism and uh, politics, there's an overlap to identity, but we don't deal with the, you know, the political or racial identity. We're more, you know, like uh, philosophical or how the brain produces thought and we both have a spiritual leaning of, uh, you know, kind of like mysticism, uh, uh, you know, like the soul. Have you 
had transcendent experiences with God? Does that happen? Do you get those spiritual peaks and highs? I don't know if there's so many highs, but I, I've learned to understand my consciousness, my thought as non-material. So like, you know, I, I guess I'm a classical dualist in line with, uh, you know, even Jewish theology, which in modern Orthodox, people don't talk about it that much. Um, but yeah, I, I've reached a level where I see the world in a spiritual way. And I look at my own you know, voice in my head as coming from an external source, uh, uh, you know, a non-physical source. So it's almost been internalized that I, that I, you know, call myself a spiritual person. I would assume that you probably have the, the opposite inclination where you maybe don't think about it too much, but if you look at your personality or your, uh, you know, the voice in your head, your drives, that you would assume they arise from your body as where I assume they don't arise from my body and have internalized my concept of the world as, uh, you know, the motivations and feelings and thoughts as not arising from my body. Have you experienced a change in your relationships with African-Americans since the George Floyd incident? No, not really. You know, like I haven't been to the chess club too much, uh, but, um, you know, Detroit didn't have too much of a Black Lives Matter protest, and, and they saw that the chief of police, who actually got disqualified for running from governor due to, uh, like, forged signatures on his petition, uh, but he basically put a curfew and didn't allow people from the suburbs to come into Detroit. And it turned out that almost all of the Black Life Matters protesters were coming from outside of uh, the city. So uh, Black Lives Matter didn't really hit uh, Detroit. Uh, I almost never see Black Lives Matter shirts. Like I live in a majority African-American neighborhood. I'm not particularly close or, or have that many philosophical conversations um, but, uh, you know, it's upper middle class. People work hard, are generally law, law obeying and pro law enforcement in, in my area. So, uh, you know, said that uh, Black Lives Matter was not popular among African-Americans in my area and even in Detroit in general. And uh, what's your attitude towards female rabbis? Traditionally, rabbis were only men. I accept them and work together with them. I was talking to my mom about, you know, like the Haley Stevens-Levin debate. And I know a lot of the Jewish women were like, all things being equal, let's vote for a woman. And uh, uh, my mom had a sister who, uh, you know, blessed memory passed away. And uh, she was actually a president of a Reconstructionist congregation in Chicago. And my mom was like, she kind of had a chip on her shoulder. And like any time that a woman could replace a man, she would be for it. She would have been the type, like, all things being equal, choose the woman. And even all things not being equal, you know, maybe choose the woman. As where my mom had feminist leanings, but she didn't mind, uh, you know, she didn't uh, have that, uh, you know, drive to, like, make sure there's women in positions of power. Uh, so I'm generally comfortable accepting the leadership roles of women. I work together with female rabbis. I'll accept their leadership. I think at the downtown synagogue, you kind of have like the chip on the shoulder type level of feminism where you're basically they, they desire to replace men. So, so like 
it's only enough when women are in charge and like you know all things being equal or even all things not being equal uh, they want uh, you, you know the voices of women uh, strengthened in a way there's you know, even as like an ally you know, like uh, like I don't call myself a male feminist but but it's it's tough to even be an ally but uh, I'd say generally I'm friendly towards female rabbis I wouldn't go to them for my they probably wouldn't look at it that way because I wouldn't go to them for uh, you know, like I want a kosher minion um, but uh, you know, like I'll accept their leadership and authority and work together with them but when it comes to actually fulfilling the mitzvahs what counts as a kosher minion or uh, things like that uh, you know I, I generally try to stick to the orthodoxy I don't know if you work the same way where you'll accept the authority and deal with women as authority structures and you're not going to reject their authority but if it came to like a minion you're not going to you know go to their minion no, I, I agree uh, completely. Uh, I'm just curious about, say, same-sex marriage. Uh, you're not married, I'm not married, yet I find the whole same-sex marriage thing you know, upsetting. It, it deeply disturbs me. How about you? Are you deeply disturbed by same-sex marriage? I'm not a hater. Um, I'm kind of homophobic. Like, I'm basically a homophobe. Um, but I'll, I'll still have homosexual friends and, you know, I'll treat people as equal. Like I probably wouldn't hang out or invite a homosexual to my house or want to, you know, go to a, like one of their parties or events, but, but I'll, I'll be friendly in a, you know, professional setting. I won't discriminate. Um, so, so I would say no, like it, it doesn't bother me as long as it uh, doesn't affect me or, or too much in my face. It doesn't bother me because I'm libertarian in general. So I don't know if you're more uh, more controlling. Maybe, maybe I have a higher level of openness where, where it just really doesn't bother me what other people do. Now, what about with regard to monkeypox? It seems to be overwhelmingly spread by gay men having sex with strangers. Uh, it seems to be spread by gay orgies in particular. And yet, uh, public health officials and politicians are extremely loath to tell gay men, "Hey, this is really dangerous for your well-being." So, we've lived with COVID for the past two and a half years, where we have all sorts of public health pronouncements and uh, politicians telling regular people how they should live, that they should socially distance, that they should not get together with their families for a while, that they shouldn't go to church or synagogue. But public health officials and politicians won't tell homosexuals you should not participate in gay orgies during the era of monkeypox. Does that difference uh, bother you? Do you have any thoughts on that? We've talked about this many times. I can say hypocrisy in general doesn't bother me. And just to clarify, I'm pretty sure that it's not a sexually transmitted disease. It just happens to be that the current outbreak and spread is among mostly the homosexual community, but it's not actually transmitted through semen. It's transmitted skin to skin. And in that sense that, uh, um, you know, those sexual relations is the most likely reason people would be rubbing up skin to skin, that it's not, you know, there, there's nothing about monkeypox that's sexually transmitted. It's not like AIDS and uh, that it's very possible that it will spread past the homosexual community. Uh, and it's just, you know, that the most common form of spread right now 
is among homosexuals because they have uh, you know prolonged skin on skin. Um, but you know, maybe like like the yeah, I'm libertarian. Like like hypocrisy doesn't bother me. I don't want to be taken advantage of. I don't like the stuff and you know like I don't even you know, like if I'm in public, I might have a distaste towards it being in my face or hypocrisy. But but I, I could just you know, generally accept it and keep the boundary of my own home or close relationships. So uh, we've discussed this in the past many times, and so maybe hypocrisy you know, kind of just irks you or bothers you, but it do doesn't really bother me. It, it doesn't bother you, the public health pronouncements target regular people saying, don't go to church, don't go to synagogue. But when it comes time to Black Lives Matter, then yeah, it's a great thing that people get together. And when there are gay orgies, there there's no discrimination. There are no condemnations of that kind of behavior, but regular people going to church or synagogue, they're told that they can't do that. But you, you don't get the similar announcements about say, go protest for Black Lives Matter or you know, go to a gay orgy. Well, I, I get it and say that it's uh, hypocrisy and it's largely political forces acting in their own interest. And uh, you know, so I, mean, I appreciate what you're saying is accurate and that it you know it's somewhat unfair, but it makes sense to me that those are political forces who are acting in their own interest, and they're hypocritical when they do it. And it's like, well, of course they're being hypocritical. Of course they're acting in their own interest, and of course they portray it as being altruistic when really they're acting in their own interest. So when it comes to COVID nineteen and cracking down on religion, they claim they're doing it alt altruistically as opposed to in their own political interest. And uh, you know the same for uh, this case of monkeypox. So you know, like it's somewhat obvious to me that uh, you know, people are acting in their own political interest and that they portray themselves to be altruistic when they're not. I mean, that doesn't sound reasonable to you. Sure, sure. Uh, had, when I say uh, it bothers you, though, like it still bothers you, even though it's kind of obvious what's happening. Oh, I, I'm not losing sleep over it, but I think it's certainly worth remarking on that that uh, people can be discouraged from going to church or synagogue but public health officials would never discourage someone from going to a black lives matter protest or to a gay orgy what does that mean it, like if you put it a general rule that you feel hypocrisy is worth calling out and so for me like i don't even need to call out oh you know, maybe occasionally for conversation but like hypocrisy to me is just expected and it's not even really worth uh, you know the effort in calling it out well, I'm not calling it out as hypocrisy. I'm just calling calling it out as certain groups get uh, preferential treatment compared to other groups. So people who go to church and synagogue when compared to Black Lives Matter activists and people who want to go to male homosexual orgies, all right, the orgy goers are privileged and the Black Lives Matter protesters are privileged and people who want to go to church or synagogue, they are discouraged. So I, I just want to make it clear what, what's going on. I, I don't care about the hypocritical element of it. Yeah, but I was saying that's larger political group dynamics and, uh, you, you know, that is somewhat obvious. Like we know what the group dynamics and political dynamics are and it's uh you know almost you know predictable that the that the they're going to act in the way they act because it's uh in their interest and uh you know you could be a dissident 
uh, but uh, you know the demographics or the group dynamics of the current situation it's uh, it's almost a given that's how it's going to be and uh, you know like i said that they'll portray themselves in an altruistic way where you know it's pretty obvious that they're not altruistic and they're just trying to uh, further increase their you know their power or you know, win the social wars cultural wars now let's say your neighbors your your neighbors let's say you had a brother and sister next door who who are living there and having an incestuous sexual relationship would, God that, forbid. would that bother you would that would that would you feel like you were being harmed even though there was nothing directly they were doing to harm you but it, just knowing that that incest was going on next door you didn't have to look at it there was no direct harm but I would feel like a spiritual harm from that. Would you feel a spiritual harm, for example, if there was incest going on next door? I mean, God forbid. Like I lived in New York, and uh, and I even had roommates, and and uh, like no, I, I like I'm I'm pretty detached. Like uh, live and let live, and non-judgmental. So like, if they asked me, I would disapprove. I would you know, pretty willingly say my thought. I wouldn't. I would unlikely forward it without being asked. But if you know they asked me, I would probably you know tell them how I felt, even though you know it, it would be unpleasant to to hear. But uh, no, it generally doesn't uh, bother me. And you know, like here it's suburban, so like at least it's like a house. So I lived in Manhattan, where uh, you know the noise or, or next door or even roommates. So at least I have a you know a single family house. So, you know, so if it was the house next door, uh, it probably wouldn't bother me at all. You know, like, I, I mean, I'm pretty detached and, and just, uh, you know, non-judgmental as long as they're not uh, harming me. Um, I don't really, uh, you know, put too much uh, judgment into what other people are doing, even if personally, uh, you know, I find it abhorrent. But so it wouldn't it wouldn't be experienced by you as a direct form of harm no not at all like i don't think it, i don't think it bothered me one bit and if if they were like having sex with animals next door and the animals weren't getting harmed and you didn't have to see it or, or hear it uh bestiality wouldn't be experienced by you as a form of harm if that's going on next door yeah i mean, I mean like god forbid if you tell like harm if like you know somebody was like beating their wife or, or something and you heard screaming you know what i call the cops what i like i have a little bit of a you know justice streak in me that like may like if i would maybe stand up for a victim but like yeah if no one's getting harmed and it's the consensual adults um it probably wouldn't bother me one bit but i mean we have traditional conceptions about how people should behave so i don't get why it wouldn't bother you like we have traditional conceptions of marriage which are getting dissolved by by same-sex marriage i i don't understand how you can emotionally be completely indifferent because i i am a libertarian and i value personal freedom and and uh you generally will allow people to make their own choices so i have my own morality or what i think is right uh but you know like especially when you preface your statements that they're not causing harm or it's uh you consenting voluntary uh adults that uh my value of personal freedom uh over overrides my uh my preference 
and uh, in general, I'm pretty resigned of my ability to change other people that you know, my experience in life, you know, like I'm already middle aged is I have very little success in changing other people. So, uh, you know, is the best strategy is to just not be bothered uh, by what the, what other people do and uh, you know, recognition that the few times I've tried to change things didn't work that well. So I don't usually try to change things. And, uh, you know, just uh, uh, causes me unnecessary, uh, you know, agmas nefesh in, in Hebrew, you know, like uh, like uh, emotional pain to even worry or think about it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, have you been doing uh, streaming or making videos on your YouTube channel just for yourself and your audience? Um. You know, I'm still. I, I've been. I, I've been going to engineering conventions, so I, I've been doing ramble streaming those. I guess yet you're Fox News covering Michigan now. Uh, you, know, my videos get like a hundred views. I've reached out for a few interviews. A lot of the people I reached out to said yes. Um, focusing more on like engineering, so I haven't been. You know, the the streaming personality, I, I probably. Could have, uh, you know, one thing. Cause Charles Moskowitz didn't really take my advice, and he's not really, uh, he he doesn't uh, like, he's not like net, he doesn't network for me. He never like uh, says like, why don't you talk to Duvid? And uh, politically provoked, I decided it'd be better not to work with him. Like when well, they went cozy, and Nick Fuentes, um, I, I didn't follow them there. Like I probably could have been in the Discord. They probably would have platformed me for some of their panels, but I, I thought it'd be more negative so i have basically forsook in a, a larger audience but i have a sufficient audience that, like you know i usually get over 100 views i have uh you know people i converse with that have interest in uh some of the things i'm talking about so i pump out regular videos on uh, you know mostly irl going to engineering conventions and that's something i'll continue to do uh you know there's more coming up in september uh and uh you know, consciousness streaming, and occasionally I'll find an interesting person to uh, reach out to an interview. But but I saw the direction of censorship, and so I I basically just cut off talking about politics, and uh, and even uh, yeah, I, I think I had I probably could have had a pretty good in working with politically provoked, but uh, I'm not sure it would have went anywhere or it would have been more negative. Like I was on Claire Cause the other day, and it's like all negative. Like I tried to have a good faith conversation where I was just talking about ideas and like, you know, everyone's against me. It's all negative energy. So, so it's like the gain is so low and uh, the loss seems so high. It's even like personal information. Like so rarely do I meet like someone like, you know, I'm going to want to exchange uh, my info with and be friends with and much more likely you get you know, like people like just negative and against you. And so it's pro probably the sign of, uh, you know, of the time that I've just, uh, but, but thank God, I have enough of a, you know, an audience to remain stable. Uh, you're just uh, doing the things that I like, but not to grow or, or make money off of it. And uh, but but uh, you know, we'll see. I might uh, you know do a few more streams. I've done a lot of research. I started writing, so it's possible I'll start streaming more, just talking about my ideas and see if I could grow an audience. I, I think it's going to be hard. I might you know keep on hitting over 100, 200, you know, maybe lucky 500. Um, 
you know, views on my videos. Maybe occasionally I get a super chat or tens of dollars or could land, uh, you know, like a semi big name that would maybe get me a few thousand views, uh, but I don't see it leading anywhere. So I, I think I'll be better off continuing my research, work with Jennifer. My goal is actually to write a book on my multiple truth hypothesis, which I'm predicting will probably be about a year and a half from now till I'm uh, ready to come out with a book. And maybe at that point, if I have a book, I'll be able to kind of like pitch myself as, uh, you know, to go on streams and, and you know, like, you know, talk about my book and sell my book or something like that. Well, but till then, um, I don't see much up, upside in it. I mean, are you seeing much upside in, in what you're doing? Yeah, I enjoy talking to people on, on live streams every day. I mean, in the chat. And uh, if I ever don't feel like it, I just skip it. So there were weeks that, that went by earlier this year in, in February and, and March where I almost never streamed. And then other times I, I want to stream every day. So it depends on how it's going. It's a day-by-day -day thing. I mean, you really like talking to people and you like talking about current events, politics, social things. But but to some extent, you're also kind of like me where you'll just ramble about what's interesting to you and uh, only talk to people who want to talk about the subject that uh, you find interesting. But, but uh, unlike you, I'm not that into politics or current events. And what was your experience like going on politically provoked? It was really negative because, like, uh, you know, you know, God forbid, like, uh, no one really agreed with me. Like, I, like, I, there, I got a handful of positive support, and Brittany was kind of nice to me. But uh, you know, counter-Semitism, like, there, there were like everyone disagreed with me, and even the, I, I didn't get any thanks. Like. Uh, I was speaking to Michael from History Speaks, and like I, I was telling him I'd speak with him if he wanted, but I wasn't even sure I wanted to have him on my channel talk about the Holocaust because I think it's uh, you're just likely to draw uh, censorship. And uh, but uh, you know, the, like so, the like no Jew thanked me, and uh, you know, like mo most of the counter Semites, like I didn't change their mind, so I, I just stopped doing it. You know, like it didn't make sense. Like, like uh, I, I thought when I was working with you or the beginning with Brundle, I was having a little bit of success. Maybe going into elections, um, I think I kept reasonably good relations with uh, you, know, Brittany, Todd, the people from Politically Provoked. Maybe going into elections, I'll try doing it again. But uh, you, know, I, I basically took from the feedback. So, uh, you know, like, no Jews were thanking me, and uh, and and I think you know generally, I wasn't changing minds. So, so I, I, I just stopped doing it. And I also felt like uh, it, it was uh, drawing negative attention to my streaming. So like, you know, I'd stream and it'd, uh, it, it'd just be people that would, uh, you know, God forbid, like pester me with uh, counter-Semitism or, or, or Jews that would uh, uh, continuously question my motives. Even like Charles Moskowitz still, like, like I kind of like backing away from streaming with him where, where where it's like two years later, he's still like kind of accusing me of being an anti-Semite. So like you're, still, you're still being affected by, was it a year ago, two years ago, that, that uh, Yosef, the guy, the English Jew, went, went, went uh, after you with some pretty strong criticisms? Um, well, I took his feedback, but uh, you know, generally I was just looking at my feedback. 
So I say, like, I, I think the last few times I've talked about Judaism, I've gotten a lot more negative than positive feedback from the Jewish angle and also the counter-Semitic angle. Like I used to get uh, a lot of reformed counter-Semites, like Brundle, like uh, like tens, you know, people that that uh, you know used to be counter-Semitic, but now, you know, uh, or you know, we're on the fence and uh, we're becoming less counter-Semitic. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so Joseph was just a big name, but uh, you know, even on his channel, like uh, you know, like uh, you know, he's thousands of viewers. No one really took my side. No one was really like, no, Duva's a good guy. Like, you know, uh, so I so I, I basically just went with the feedback. I wasn't getting any positive feedback, so I stopped doing it. Okay. I don't I... Know if it's not the same way, the same way like that, or if you just uh, think that's a good way to read it. Oh, uh, I I take feedback seriously. Uh, I mean, it gets a vote. It doesn't get a veto. So I often do streams where I'm arguing wherever with everyone in the chat, wherever contrary point of view compared to every person in the chat. So I'm willing well, that's to. Your own chat. I'm sorry. I'm talking, I mean, your own chat, but I'm talking like, you know, on other people's shows or let alone, I mean, because you have your own show, your own, your own, your own audience. So I, you know, like if I had audience, I did ask the rabbis, so I still do ask the rabbis, and my viewership you know, was down the last last the rabbis. You still got over two hundred views, uh, but uh, you know you're talking about going on politically provoked, you know. So like if I do another ask the rabbi or something like that, I'll say what I want to say, but I'll just do that once every few months. But if I go on politically provoked, or even set myself up, you know, to self promote myself uh, to go on another channel. Uh, the majority of my feedback was negative so i just like i'm not going to self-promote myself because uh you know um it's a thankless job no one th you know like i'm not doing myself a favor and no one's thanking me for uh you know doing it so Matt, your, your situation you mean you, you almost never go on other shows yeah so I, I mean i wouldn't go on another show that abused me but i'd be happy to go on another show where absolutely everybody disagreed with me so th there's a big difference between criticism and abuse but uh i'm gonna share with you i just got a review copy of the new uh Koran english language translation of the tanakh the hebrew bible translated by the late rabbi jonathan Sachs, and uh, it's just a beautiful beautiful work it's uh like it's about 60 dollars, but uh all sorts of charts and pictures so that's that's one of the the good things about having a blog and, and doing videos is sometimes you get review copies of uh new books so I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into this new translation was that for sale yet or is they get a pre pre-issue uh it, it is for sale so i think they, they just released it at the end of last year but i just uh just got a review copy yesterday i'm a little cheap but if you wanted to start streaming more like torah stuff um i would probably buy that if, if you did want to go go over that but I'm a, I'm a tad bit cheap i assume that if i went to the young israel they probably you know, at least if they don't have uh, shul copies, there's multiple people there. But, uh, you know, I got to wait for the price to go down a little bit. But if you did want to, uh, you know, Sunday, like Torah Talks again or something like that, I would probably buy it. Okay. Um, I'm going to wrap up for this week. Do you have any final words for this week, David? Yeah, good to catch up and, uh, you know, keep posted. So, you know, glad you're streaming. hope things are going uh, good. You have Michigan elections coming here and that you know we'll see Rashida it's going to be interesting you know Rashida Tlaib is going you know I don't know in LA like that 
but she's going to be in charge of the Orthodox area. And, uh, you know, Andy Levin as the progressive Jew losing to the APAC candidate. So, uh, you know, that's noteworthy. I might do a stream on my channel of Dishan. Um, you know, so if you want to talk every once in a while, it's, you know, like I'm glad to see you doing well or, or, or you know, keeping the loop. And if you do want to go back to Torah learning or, or the Rabbi Sachs, I'll get a hold of that. Okay, great. So I'll be in touch. Good to talk to you, David. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Okay, I just want to play a couple of minutes here from Mark Brahman talking with Richard Spencer. But um, but it is. It's it's if you could use, for example, and, and maybe this is something that they think about themselves, that there, it, but I don't think ultimately it doesn't, I don't think it works because if you could use religion in a kind of um, Machiavellian, Machiavellian way where you're, um, you know, you're using it cynically, you're not yourself yeah. a Christian or you don't believe right. in Christianity, but you, and you have a more kind of non-superstitious or Apollonian mindset um, that you could use religion just in a kind of cynical, cynical and political way. But it doesn't seem like that's the case because mm. these people are not behaving rationally. I think of Bannon and I think of, you know, in our smaller world, I think of uh, Nick Fuentes. He's not rational. He's, he's basically gone insane, right? He's not mm -hmm. acting in an intelligent, sober and rational way. But the wheels are off the cart, as it were. Mm -hmm. right? um, and um, but Bannon is, is, is following suit. I mean, you know, it's not like if that's if. If you're really at a point where you're calling for an insurrection, it's just like, I mean, you're, you're basically, the chamber's empty. You, you're out of, you don't really have a plan. You don't really, you know what I mean? So what would be the vision once you were in office? I mean, it's just not, I mean, I, I, so I think that they're kind of like, again, if you could use religion as an instrument or a tool and sort of be above it, then maybe you could see the, the purpose or use in it. But once it kind of infects your own mind and you start thinking in these kind of apop apocalyptic ways, then I think that you, you basically have gone insane. And I think, that, uh, uh, I think that all the sort of remnants of the Trump campaign have gone effectively insane, you know what I mean? From, yeah. Q, from QAnon on up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so, no, absolutely. I, I think there's a um, uh, a kind of reiteration or parallel development of all of these movements where all of them are kind of Q in a weird way. And Q, Q is this fascinating development in that it, it developed from the Chans, you know, anonymous 4chan posting about politics. And it put forward this almost anti-conspiracy theory. It, it was a kind of weirdly benign conspiracy theory that yes there are all these evil people in government they're, they're even worse than you thought they're drinking the blood of babies and raping kids and all this kind of stuff but there's also these good guys in government and they're going to solve it for you so you just kind of need to stay tuned in to q like get on the you know tune out of the mainstream and get on this wavelength which is like your facebook feed or something and you'll you'll see like a battle between good and evil play out right before you but then in this kind of funny way where it's like oh, none of these promises are kept and so it becomes you know trump never arrested hillary clinton he never frog marched John McCain and all the, the pedophile ring down Pennsylvania Avenue. And so they are inspired to do it themselves. And they were. I mean, Ashley Babbitt's last live stream, she quoted QAnon, his final post about, you know, the, the storm is here and so on. And it's it just, it, I don't, I don't it's, it's, a, it's a weird way where it, it almost is kind of like, to, to use another metaphor that, that you're fond of, I mean, it, it is a kind of Gollum-like thing where you have this mass of people that is anxious and justifiably anxious in a way. You know, the American dream's dead. The, the, the possibility of, of, of a universal, prosperous, middle-class society is gone. And, you know, uh, and, and you're being racially displaced and there's mass immigration and crime in the city, et cetera. We get it. So they're anxious and maybe for good reasons, maybe sometimes for bad reasons, but you, you get it. They're anxious. And you kind of place this, these little like ideas, memes or words in their head, and they kind of spring into action in a way that would, would otherwise be impossible. I mean, Ashley Babbitt was just some chick you know, she was pretty normal as it goes. She she wasn't exactly upright, but whatever. Um, and she voted for Barack Obama. And you she gets keyed into these things where it is a wor world of words. 
you know, the, the, all that QAnon stuff, it's a world of memes and images to some degree, but it's a world of words and kind of these, these ways that you can kind of like call upon things in their minds that will, will kind of spring them into action. Like the storm is coming and this notion of satanic influence. And next thing you know, they're doing things that, that they would otherwise find unimaginable. Next thing you know, Ashley Babbitt is walking into the Capitol while it is being breached and people are yelling, you know, guards are telling her to get away back down and she is not. And she ends up with a bullet in her neck. Uh, who could have possibly imagined a situation like that for, for this woman four years earlier? She, she could have more easily imagined that she was, you know, I don't know, going to a rock concert on January 6th or whatever, you know, what I, you know just doing a normie type thing. And instead, she found herself in this extreme situation um, through, again, this, this kind of mindfuckery, if you will, but this ability to kind of inject memes into their heads that animate them and animate an otherwise kind of dead corpse. Yeah, I mean, on, on some level, it, it, it is true that it was, it was completely populist, right? So Trump's movement was genuinely a populist movement. Mm -hmm. And it's the first, like, genuinely populist movement that we've seen in our lifetime, I, I would think. I mean, the Tea Party would be an early kind of um, yeah. expression of it, for example. Okay, that's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.